0: So I want you to imagine uh, it is towards the beginning of 2020 and news of an infectious virus is spreading from China across Europe. Now, you are in the UK government. Knowing what you know now, what would you do? You don't have to shout (laughs) out. But what would you do? And none of this, I don't mean this is a criticism of any decisions that have been made. But if you were in that position and you know what you know now, what would you do? I think one of the first things, certainly I would do, well, we'd tighten up the borders. We don't bring people in, even UK citizens. You don't just come into the country. You need to be quarantined. You need to be tested. Because once a virus gets hold, and we've seen the damage that it can cause, and yet there are things that are more deadly than COVID that are right on our doorstep. In our morning series in 1 uh, we saw this warning against Antichrist, these deceivers who have gone out uh, that they they've gone out from a church community and they've gone out with this message, this Antichrist, this anti-Gospel message. And uh, in 1 John 2, uh, we're told that in the period between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return, there's going to be this deception. Satan is sending this deception that's coming. It's something that we should be on the guard for. It's something we should expect. Uh, and that's going to happen during this period of the last days, the last days that we're in now. And so if we recognise you know, the need for COVID-secure measures, how much more Do we need to be aware of these dangers, this deception uh, that the letter of 1 and 2 John warn us about? That is the situation that they're addressing, these deceptions. Now, if you just hold the picture or the metaphor of a house in your mind for a moment, 1 John, primarily, it it addresses what's going on in the living room. It's about the life of the community. Now, the letter of 2 John, that's more about what's going on at the entrance of the house namely that there needs to be a door and the door needs to be closed on those who are deceptive those who are bringing this anti-christ message and so two things that we are going to consider as we go through uh, this letter this evening is uh, firstly why we need a door and then secondly what it actually means to close the door so why we need a door you know, there are various forms of deception. Some forms of deception aren't actually that harmful and they can be quite entertaining. If you think about magic and illusions, uh, mystery dramas, uh, which the North Home Group know I have a penchant for, um, or novels. Like In those instances, not a lot of damage occurs. The only thing that tends to get damaged is your pride when you're like, oh, I, I didn't quite figure it out. It didn't go the way that I expected. And yet there is lots of deception that is damaging lying, scams being swindled. Uh, And what we tend to do is we we measure the danger of deception by the degree of hurt it causes. Now the question is, what is this thing robbing you of? Now in the case of a street magician, not much at all, nothing. But when it comes to a pickpocket, we recognise, okay, measures need to be taken. Because the degree of danger is measured uh, by, by, sorry, the the danger uh, is measured by the degree to which it's going to haunt. Now when we come to 2 John uh, verse 7, now we're given the reason why this letter is written. I I have a look down at verse 7. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. So their message is one that is anti-Christ, it's anti-Jesus. We see that many deceivers have gone out, there's been many deceivers, many variations on this message, but ultimately it comes down to uh, one one common cause, which is it's an anti-Christ, it's an anti-Jesus message. And if we measure the danger of deception by the degree of harm it causes, and this question, what is it seeking to rob us of? Now these deceivers, it's an anti-Christ. Christ's message, what are they seeking to rob us of? That They're seeking to rob us of Christ. And really for us to see the degree of damage, the destruction that it causes, how horrifically evil an antichrist message is. Now we need to spend some time considering well, what is the message of Christ? What is this good and glorious message that is being distorted, that people are being robbed of through this antichrist message? Just have a look at verses 1 to 2. Now, truth is a word that occurs quite a lot in the opening verses of this letter. We read, From the elder to the lady chosen by God and her children, whom I love in the truth. And not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. And yet truth is much more than just having the correct facts. If you think back to, we um, have got it on the screen, uh, John 14, verse, that should be six. That's meant to be a bracket, not a zero. Uh, John 14, verse six, you'll be there a long time if you're looking for verse 60. Uh, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then in John 15, verse 26, Jesus says, when the advocate, advocate comes whom i will send to you from the father the spirit of truth who goes out from the father he will testify about me and similarly uh, in the letter one john five verse six it's the spirit who testifies just like we read there in john's gospel because the spirit is truth and so when john is writing about the truth he's not simply referring to facts it's more than facts it's about fellowship now truth is about the presence of God. So when we read here in verse 2, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever, this is more about them being factually in the right or in the wrong. This is all about being in God. And so verse 3, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. And what is given to us is grace, mercy and peace. Grace speaks of a gift. The term grace speaks of a delightful gift that is given with delight. And as we went through one John, one of the things that we saw of God's purpose is to bring people into his family. The people brought into the family to share that family resemblance. When we consider how really it means to be caught up within the fellowship of the Trinity, it's a delightful gift. If you think about it, we as created beings are invited, called by God to share in the fellowship and the life of the infinite God. And the love that we experience in Christ is greater than any love we could experience outside Christ. Now, if, if god loved us just as created creatures as we are now it's a bit like an eternal waterfall that's pouring into a finite basin and at some point that basin is going to reach saturation not not because of any limitation on the waterfalls side but because of a limitation a limited ability to receive the love within the trinity is more like an infinite waterfall pouring into an infinite basin. And that's the love that God calls us to in Christ. That's really the basis of Jesus' prayer in John 15, that we would know that love, that we would experience the love of the Father for the Son, that we are brought into that fellowship. It's a delightful gift that God delights to give. And yet also it's a gift that's not merely given to mortals, but it's given to mortal rebels. So grace and mercy go together. Grace would still be grace, even if we hadn't sinned. Grace would still be a delightful and merited gift, even if we hadn't sinned. If you think about it, a law-abiding citizen has no right to become part of the royal family. For that to happen, it's an undeserved gift. So even a law-abiding citizen has no right to become part of the royal family. How much less so you know, someone who was seek to overthrow the monarchy. To grace and mercy here go together. The gift was never deserved. Even before sin came into the world, the gift wasn't deserved. Once sin came into the world, once we rebelled, the thing that was deserved was our condemnation. But God in his mercy, he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us the gift of his grace because God is a God who delights in grace and in mercy. So in his love, the father sends the son into the world to turn us from our rebellion, to bring us back to him through his death on the cross, his atoning death. Jesus bears our sin, bears a condemnation so that we share in his life, his resurrected life, and the result of all this is Peace. Grace, mercy, and peace. And I know you've probably heard me say before, I make no apology for saying again. Peace is more than the absence of conflict. Peace, as described in the Bible, speaks of a wholeness of a completeness. So if you will, peace is piecing together what is broken. That's what God has done. That's what God is doing in Christ. This morning we we're looking at Genesis, Genesis at the very beginning, no, we see a world full of potential. It's not reached all its completeness yet, all the building blocks are there, God sends humanity out with this blessing, with this promise. It's a world full of potential, the building blocks are there and we as humanity, we trash it. And what God does in Christ is not simply then restoring what is broken, he then brings it to completion. That's God's purpose in Christ. Now all things are brought together in him. They're held together in him. He reigns. He rules over all. So that the glory of God fills the earth. So that we as the people of God. We reflect the glory. Images of God. That is his purpose in Christ. That's where God is taking history. It's grace, mercy and peace from God the Father. And from Jesus Christ. It's God's purpose. It is a purpose. That if we stop to think about it's beyond our comprehension. It's no wonder Scripture says that these things have to be revealed by the Spirit. But verse 3 also goes on. It says, grace, mercy and peace, look ahead, will be with us in truth and love. And I think we're to take this to mean that there is no grace, mercy and peace aside from truth and love. Now, truth and love. What's that mean? We may remember in Wang John there are two sort of commands that John really focuses in on. And we kept coming back around to these commands. And the command was to believe the testimony about Jesus and to love one another. And truth is often used to describe believing that testimony. Think about uh, a few weeks back, even one of the verses we just read that in you know, the spirit, the spirit of truth this testimony about Christ. So we've got truth. Love is fairly self-evident. So truth and love is this theme that we've seen throughout the letter of Wong John, we've been coming back round to again and again. And it's used by John to speak of abiding in Christ. And so when we read grace, mercy and peace, will be with us in truth and love. I think that means our experience, our experience of grace, mercy and peace It is only through abiding in Christ. To grace, mercy and peace. It comes from God the Father, from Jesus Christ. God is the source and it's in truth and love. It's only mediated through Christ. Now just look down at verse 6. This is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. And as you have heard from the the beginning, his command is, is that you walk in love. Or literally, that you walk in it. Now, the question is, what is meant by it? Is it referring to the immediate context, in which case, love, as the NIV translates? Or is it referring to the slightly broader context, in which case, it is truth and love? And I think there's good reason for us to take verse 6 as referring to truth and love. His command is that you walk in truth and and love there's some of the reasons for that you can see on the bottom of the screen there uh, some parallels in verse 6 with 1 John so 1 John chapter 5 verse 3 uh, and chapter 3 23 this dual focus of truth and love believing the testimony about Jesus Christ loving one another verse 6 is saying walk in it walk in truth and love truth and love we said John's way of saying abide in Christ that you need to abide in Christ. Because, then verse 9, if we jump ahead. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching, hence his command to walk in truth and love, has both the Father and the Son. And we've been told at the beginning of this letter, we see glimpses of what is given to us in Christ is beyond our comprehension. But aside from Christ, there is absolutely nothing. This is only in Christ. And so do you see why the why the anti-Christ teaching is so destructive? Why it requires this immediate attention? This distortion of this teaching of Christ means to lose everything. Is to plunge into a decreation and a disorder and into death. Aside from Christ, there's no fellowship with God. Aside from fellowship with God, there is no grace, there is no mercy, there is no peace. And that is why that those who are teaching this teaching that diverges from the truth of the gospel are teaching deadly deceptions and why John is saying the church must shut the door. The church needs a door and it must close the door on these deceivers. The church needs a door. But now we need to ask this question, what does it mean to close the door? Perhaps the first question is, Well, who are we to close the door on? We've touched on that a little already. Have a look again at verse 7. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. So who's the deceiver? Who's the Antichrist? Are those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now might think back to John's Gospel, John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now right there, right on page one of the Gospel, now these deceivers, these teachers of this Antichrist doctrine have gone astray on page one. And yet yeah, I think there's also something a, a bit more to it. The way that John seems to use uh, this phrase about Jesus coming and Jesus coming in the flesh, it seems to mean more than just how Jesus comes to us, i.e. the incarnation. It seems to refer why Jesus comes. So it's not just simply the means of Jesus coming to us, the incarnation, God becoming one of us, but also his mission. And so when John says about Jesus coming in the flesh, and I think we see this in one John as well, with some of the other aspects that are picked up about these false teachers, it seems to be John's shorthand of basically saying another the gospel It's on the first page of the gospel. The word became flesh. And Actually, a lot of the ways that the Bible cross-references, it will throw you to one place and expect you to take the broader context of what is written there may well be what John's doing here. So when he's warning about those who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh, it may not just be that they're denying the incarnation, but it could be any aspect of the gospel as given, uh, as recorded by the eyewitnesses that are given to us in scripture. These people are denying what has been revealed, what has been recorded to us, the truth about Jesus Christ. Now, some of the things that we see uh, in John's Gospel, the divinity of Christ, the Word becomes flesh. The Word is with God, the Word was. God. The Word becomes flesh. We see Jesus as the atoning sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to me. He speaks of the type of death that he's going to die as a sacrifice for sins. We see in John's Gospel that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Now we see in John's Gospel God's purpose of creating a people for himself. This need to be reborn, this, this second birth, being born again. Born by the Spirit in order that we love, that we love one another as Christ has loved us. See these are themes that we see going through John's Gospel. Are themes that get picked up in Wong John as he's refuting some of the claims of these false teachers. And so this warning, the Antichrist those who do not acknowledge Jesus as coming in the flesh, which I think understand this as a shorthand, of saying the Antichrist are those who teach a different gospel, who teach a different Jesus to the Jesus as revealed in Scripture. So this isn't closing the door on those who have different views on leadership, uh, different views on end times, uh, eschatology, different views on spiritual gifts or Baptism or the Lord's Supper. This is saying, this is closing the door on those who claim to be Christians. And who are presenting, who are preaching, who are proclaiming a different Jesus to the Jesus as given to us in the Gospels. So verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, truth. As we've seen in John's Gospel, we've got Matthew, Mark and Luke as well. The Gospel, Jesus Christ. Do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. How do we apply this? Well, it may help for us to know something of our hospitality in the first century Greco-Roman culture. So I want you to uh, consider for a moment the differences between a restaurant and a service station. A restaurant, a restaurant normally specific hours at a restaurant is open lots of times, people will book to go to a restaurant you tend to get regulars who go to a restaurant when people go to a restaurant they're normally going for a nice night out they're not going out of necessity when people have finished their meal they get up and they go home now think of a service station service station open up all hours now people can turn up at any time even in the middle of the night. You have no idea who's going to turn up. You don't book to go to a service station. You just turn up there. And people are travelling. Often they're on a journey um, of some kind. Maybe it's for work. They're not doing it necessarily for fun. It's not, let's go to the service station for a nice night out. Uh, it's, it's a necessity. And as they're doing that for work, you know, they need to recuperate. Perhaps they need to refuel. And so the service station acts as a way of actually facilitating that person's work. If you need to travel, I mean, it's going to be a bit difficult at the moment to fill up with petrol, but you could fill up with petrol at a service station, probably one of the few places that still has it, because it? um, it's so expensive. But you, <laughs> Sorry, going off on. But you can, you can fill up there, uh, and you can t- continue your journey. You can rest up. You can connect to the Wi-Fi. You can do work. No, it's a place that supports you in your journey, in your mission, so to speak. Now just transfer those two concepts into the home. In our culture, we tend to think and view and do hospitality more like a restaurant. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But in the first century, it was more like a service station. So as people offered hospitality, it was offering this support to strangers. It worked more like a service station. You... um. You bring a stranger into your home, someone who didn't have any rights, who didn't have any protection in that area, and by bringing them into your home, you were making a stranger a member of the family and by extension, a member of the community. So you're giving them protection and you were extending to them community privileges, community connections. It's also a way of networking. So here, uh, John warns, if anyone comes to you And they do not bring this teaching. In other words, if they're bringing an anti-Christ teaching, don't take them into your home. Because if you take them into your home, if you're showing hospitality in the first century sense of the the word, then what you are doing is you are facilitating their mission. You are helping them in their mission by providing them with the resources that they need to get into the community. Do not support them. And that's why we're telling you that anyone who welcomes them, verse 11, shares in their wicked work. You're supporting them in their mission, so don't do it. This is not something that you want to support. So how does the command apply to us then? In our culture, what does it mean to close the door on deceivers? Well, for a start, it doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong to have a Jehovah's Witness over to your house for dinner. That's not what it would mean for us by, don't welcome them into your house. As we see, now, the way that we do hospitality hospitality is somewhat different to the way that, that it was experienced in the first century. What it does mean is that we cannot, we should not support the work of those who are teaching a message that is contrary to the message of Christ. So in the first century, the way that you did that was you don't welcome them to the home. You don't offer them hospitality. You don't do that because to do that would be to support their work. For us today, the application is going to look slightly different. So from a personal point of view, that's going to mean we give careful consideration you know, to what organizations we support. That might mean financial support. It might mean we support them in promotions that could be promoting some of their reading materials. It might be promoting you know, some of their, their podcasts, their audio sermons. Because verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't take them in to your house. Don't welcome them. Don't support them. Now, if anyone comes to you, it doesn't matter kind of what past pedigree they have, what name the Christian organization are. If they are actively teaching a message that is different to the message of the gospel, John says, shut it out. Have nothing to do with them. Now for us as a church, what's it mean? It means that we cannot partner with other churches that teach a message, teach a gospel that is different, that is in contradiction to the message of the gospel that we have in Scripture. We cannot partner with a church that would teach a different Jesus. And so for us at Kingfisher, if a church was to deny the atoning death of Christ, that he is the only way to salvation, we cannot partner with them, we cannot support them. Now whether financially, whether in mission, or otherwise, verse 10 tells us if anyone comes to you, anyone, doesn't matter kind of what name they're coming with, what past relationships were there, if you think about in the letter of 1 John, he speaks about that these are people who came from us. They came with a history, they came with a heritage, but if anyone comes to you and they do not proclaim the teaching, the teaching about Christ, the teaching, an anti-Christ teaching, 2 John tells us you've got to shut the door. We as Kingfisher have to shut the door, not because we think we're better than anyone else, but because the stakes So high, what is given us in Christ is beyond our greatest imagining. Jesus is the only hope for the world, and so a message that denies that a message that denies the atoning sacrifice of Christ that brings us into fellowship with God in order that we may experience the peace that He brings, the peace. He is bringing. Now it's to cut people off from God's grace and mercy and peace. To distort the message of Christ. To distort the good and the glorious message of Christ we see is a terrible evil. Shut the door, 2 John says, anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. The church has to have a door. And out of love, it has to be closed on anything that would seek to distort, and to distract, and to divert from the good and the glorious message of God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your peace that is given to us in Christ. Lord, a salvation that is beyond our comprehension. And Father, we do pray that we would would be given a greater understanding, an experiential understanding that comes not from our eyes, but from your spirit just revealing the wonders and the beauty and the glory of Christ to us. Lord, that we would experience that more and more day by day as your people. Lord, that we would encourage one another as a church with that news. That we would spread it and declare that news to the communities around us. And Father, we also pray that you would give us discernment. Uh, that we would be discerning to, to be on our guard against those false teachings. Those false teachings we are warned about that we are to expect at this period, this time in history that we together as your people, that as a church, uh, would recognise those false teachings, that that we would close the door on them. And instead we would proclaim all the more clearly, all the more boldly, Lord, your great love and your grace and your mercy, what that you offer to a broken world and to experience the peace and the wholeness the beauty of your glory in Jesus Christ. Amen.